Al Kennedy, hey. Uh, so I was thinking about Firestar and Justice, right? Uh, they're both mutants, but she's been an X-Man a couple of times now, and he never has. So what's what's the deal with that? Oh, hey, Wes. I mean, mostly it comes down to their origins in the Marvel Universe. When Firestar started her incontinuity existence with Emma Frost's Hellions, whereas Justice was an ally of the Thing, so it makes sense that she would gravitate towards the other mutant teams in a way that he wouldn't, even though he's a mutant himself. But, I mean, we haven't talked in a while. Why are you asking me? I mean, you know, your, your Twitter bio says you're a new warrior-ologist, so you seemed a natural choice. Uh, so, is Justice just not really a team guy then? Uh, outside of the new warriors, I mean. Actually, he technically first appeared as an older version of himself from an alternate future, as leader of the original Guardians of the Galaxy. And, and you know, this is all really interesting, but is everything okay? Isn't Jay normally the person you don't have these kinds of conversations with? Uh, totally, yeah, but he's he's pretty busy right now. Oh, yeah, what's he been up to? He and his wife just had a kid. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, I'm so happy for them. I know, right? Me too. He's going to be a great dad. Uh, way less child endangerment than when Cyclops and Marvel Girl brought baby Cable everywhere in a bubble back in X-Factor. Oh, yeah, that's probably for the best. No parent wants their child to end up with that many pouches. But again, I'm really flattered that you came to me with your new Warriors questions, but you know so many other comic book podcasters. Uh, well, sure, but Jay specifically recommended you. For what? To sub in for him. Oh, uh, I mean, that sounds really fun. But I do have my own podcast, a day job, and a family. Oh, that's, I mean, I, I, I totally respect that. That's fine. We'll just, we'll just put the show on hiatus. I, I'm sure the listeners will understand. Uh, you know what? It, it's fine. It's fine. I would be happy to help you guys out, especially to help another parent. Awesome. That's that's really a relief. So how long were you thinking? A uh, couple months or so. What? I'm Miles Stokes. And I'm Al Kennedy, filling in for G. Eden while he's on parental leave. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 396 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to... The ninth annual Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men giant-sized winter special! It has somehow been a full year since our last winter special in this temporarily broken land. The world is very similar in some ways and very different in others. For instance, you may already know this if you listened to our last episode, or the cold open for that matter, but Jay and his wife T had a baby, or uh, will have had a baby because we're recording this slightly before that will have actually happened. Uh, but while Jay's away for a while trying to prevent his kid from being infected with a techno-organic virus and being sent into the future, Al Kennedy of the excellent podcast House to Astonish, among other things, will be sitting in for him. So, Al, thank you so much for agreeing to such a legitimately gigantic task. Thank you so much for asking. Like, It's absolutely terrific to be here. Yeah, I am excited. So, for listeners who don't know you, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a podcaster from Scotland, as you can probably hear by my accent. Uh, and I have been co-hosting a show called House to Astonish since 2008, uh, with my friend Paul O'Brien, who um, has been writing about the X-Men online since, I think, the dawn of the internet. Um, he's 
well known for his work um, doing a, his X-Men review column, The X-Axis, um, which he's been doing since Usenet days. Um, but we've been hosting this show, House of Astonish, now for 14 years, and uh, it's essentially news and reviews and a bit of kind of mucking around at the end of each episode doing a makeover session for uh, a character from the depths of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. 14 years. Wow. Yeah. That I mean, we've been podcasting for a while, but talking about the dawn of the internet, you guys are like OG. <laughs> I think I bill us as being Scotland's oldest comics podcast, but I think that's about as, as much as we can get away with claiming. I, I don't think I'll be able to say anything more than that. Otherwise, uh, people would start coming out and going, I think you'll find I did four episodes of Web of Web of Spider-Man in 2007. Like <laughs> web of web of spider-man would actually be a, a pretty good <laughs> podcast name um so yes uh listeners al and i are going to be uh shepherding the show through the next question mark amount of time uh while jay's on parental leave um and we're going to do our best to keep the show as awesome as it normally is we're just going to keep on keeping on with continuity uh going straight from the end of operation zero tolerance but now of course we're doing a winter special. So I suppose we should talk a little bit about what that's going to include. Yeah, so we're going to have uh, you and Jay have already recorded the session about uh, the New Mutants Truth or Death miniseries from 1998, which uh, I, I have to say I haven't ever read. And I'm looking forward to, because I haven't heard that section yet, getting to hear it in between the bits that we're recording now because of time travel time travel which is as it turns out appropriate for the story new mutants truth or death it's a really fun story we don't always pick winners for our winter special but this has been uh one of jay's and my favorites for for a long time we also are going to have as usual an interview in this winter special and just to complicate things that's going to be with another al that is going to be with writer al ewing of x-men red it is a bit strange that you got al ewing and al kennedy both names from uh, American mythology. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but that's a really good point. You know, X-Men continuity is complicated. Sometimes X-Men podcasting continuity is similarly complicated. And then the episode's going to wrap up with the ninth annual Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbo Awards for Excellence at Excellence. Yes, indeed. So, because we have so much on our plate, we should probably just dive right in. So, let's get one last bit of time with Jay to talk about a New Mutants comic. And Al, I will see you after that to talk to Al Ewing. Joining me now from the recent pre-baby past is Jay. Hi! So, how's the future, Miles? Are there flying cars yet? D dude, this only goes live, like, a few weeks after we record it. Yeah, well, it's given the last couple of years, I'm pretty sure a lot can happen in a few weeks. That is an excellent point. It is my past as well. We are recording this, in fact, at the same point in the timeline, so I have no flying car answers for you. Maybe there are flying cars. Maybe. Presumably somewhere in the future, you're zipping around in a flying car and I am being thrown up on by a tiny human. But for now, let's talk about some comics. Let's do. So, listeners, as you may know, if you've listened to past winter specials, we usually try to find a comic from around the time our regular coverage is at that we really like. Sometimes that works out well, other times it doesn't. Sometimes we end up with Cable putting Wolfsbane in a straitjacket and it's Reign of Terra. 
This time, though, we do indeed have a favorite to talk about. And that is late 1997 miniseries, New Mutants, Truth or Death. Which, randomly enough, we didn't intend it to be this way, but we are recording this right around the 25th anniversary of this miniseries, which A, is a cool coincidence, and B, makes me feel old. Yeah, yeah, um, I remember getting this signed at the first comics convention I ever went to, which would have been in 2004, I think? Oh man, who'd you have sign it? Uh, Bernard Chang. Okay, so we have a lot to talk about. This is a shockingly dense miniseries. But let's kind of talk about it in context, because this came out, like you said, at the end of 1997. We hadn't seen the New Mutants, or at least most of the New Mutants, together since the X-Force New Warriors Child's Play crossover back in 1994. And now we're seeing not only a bunch of the original New Mutants together, but a bunch of the new original New Mutants together twice. Yep, yep, double the trouble, or double the fun. Because this, dear listeners, is a story full of one of our favorite things. Not clones this time, but time travel bullshit. Yay! Which, you know, if you look at A Christmas Carol, do indeed have a sort of seasonally appropriate component, although this episode is coming out after Christmas. So yeah, this is a fun one. Um, The plot is alright. The character interaction, though, is where it's at. That was always the strength of New Mutants. And now... We do indeed have two sets of the New Mutants, which means even more opportunities for character interaction. I want to throw in for the art, too, because Bernard Chang brings a really, really fresh perspective to the characters, and really to the entire line at this point, that I absolutely love. Like, he's such, such a good fit for this series, and he brings so much life to it. Oh man, he he really does. What I like is he's good at both capturing the characters, but also differentiating the younger versions from the older versions. You can tell they're the same people, but you can also tell that they're different ages, and it's kind of hard to get that subtlety. Also, his original New Mutants are very, very much Bob McLeod's New Mutants, which makes me so happy. For real. So Bernard Chang weirdly didn't actually do all that much Marvel, mostly just a handful of scattered issues here and there. He's actually known more for his DC and Valiant work, and I found out he um, also did illustrations for The Game, Penetrating the Secret Society of Pickup Artists, like I'm sure a lot of people have heard of that book, yeah, and uh, also for porn star Jenna Jameson's autobiography, apparently. Okay. Yeah, and he was a concept artist for Walt Disney Imagineering. This dude's career has been all over the place, but his art is great. Yeah, and again, he's just such a good fit for this series. But you mentioned we hadn't seen the New Mutants together in a really long time, and I feel like given that we're looking at them at two different points in time at once, much like us and this winter special, um, we should maybe go back to the beginning you know, where they came from, where the kids are going to be when we first join them, and where their adult counterparts are now. I like this plan. So, once upon a time, when the X-Men were presumed dead in space, Professor X recruited a new team of mutants for his school and named them the New Mutants. He was not feeling particularly creative that day. I mean, he was secretly possessed by an alien, he was probably distracted, but that part's not relevant, so let's just talk about the New Mutants part. The original team of New Mutants were from all over the world. We had Sam Guthrie, a.k.a. Cannonball, from Kentucky. He's nigh invulnerable when blasting. We had Danielle Moonstar, a.k.a. Mirage, of the Cheyenne Nation, who can bring people's greatest fears to life. And later she also learned to shoot psychic arrows, which did, to be fair, look pretty cool. Roberto da Costa, a.k.a. Sunspot, from Brazil. He had solar-powered strength and later learned to convey that into flight. 
There was also Rain Sinclair, aka Wolfsbane, from Scotland. She's a werewolf, but like one who can control it. No moons involved. And Shan Kui Man, also known as Karma, from Vietnam. She can possess people. Later on, a few other kids joined. And no, we're not going to be talking about Bird Boy or Gossamer. They don't count. Or all the kids that came in from X Factor, because they're not really relevant here. So let's start instead... With Ilyana Rasputin, aka Magic. She's from Russia, and she's Colossus's little sister. She originally came to the X-Men at about six years old, but spent an accelerated childhood in the Hell Dimension limbo and emerged a few minutes later a teenager with not only her mutant teleportation abilities, but also demonic magic powers. Much more straightforward was Amara Aquila, aka Magma, from a lost ancient Roman colony. Kinda, it got retconned and then unretconned. Anyway, she's got volcano powers. It's cute how you think her background's more straightforward. I mean, Ilyana's is pretty complex, especially as continuity continues and it gets even more complex. Yeah, that's true, and this miniseries is going to throw an extra wrench in there. Um, we also had two of my all-time favorite characters, Doug Ramsey from New York, a.k.a. Cypher. He's got linguistic powers, and Warlock, a shapeshifter from space. Of the characters, Magic probably had the roughest time. She ended up sacrificing her identity and her memories that she had as a teenager to contain the evil that she inadvertently unleashed during the Inferno event, and then the little girl that she became very shortly thereafter died of the mutant-targeting legacy virus. Cypher and Warlock would respectively die in two additional crossovers, fewer demons involved, but just about as tragic. Eventually, the New Mutants went their separate ways, joining various X-teams from X-Force to X-Factor to Excalibur to the X-Men, and wandering the world. But now, it's time for a reunion, and that brings us to the miniseries. And New Mutants, Truth or Death, number one. This issue is written by Ben Robb, penciled by Bernard Chang, inked by Mark Pennington, colored by Tom Vincent, lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft's Liz Agrafidus, as in she belongs to Comicraft, or it was Richard Starkings and Liz, who herself is from Comicraft. It's very unclear. Liz, if you're listening, uh, nice work, I guess, and uh, enlighten us. Anyway, we talked about Bernard Chang a bunch. Let's talk about him a little bit more. We have often talked about how you can tell a lot about an artist based on how they draw Warlock. Absolutely, because Warlock is so dependent on individual styles. He's so protean, he's so variable, and... The ways that different artists approach him tend to reflect a lot of their storytelling sensibilities. Yeah, this version of Warlock is still irregular and protean and Saturday morning cartoonish, but he's kind of squatter and more solid than the way some artists draw him. Like an 80s action figure version, kinda. I'm sure a lot of that is Mark Pennington's inks, but I like it. I like the sort of solid, thick black outlines that characterize the art in this entire miniseries. Pennington and Chang are a good team. They really, really are. Let's also talk covers. So every issue has one character close-up in the foreground of the cover, uh, with some other characters doing their thing in the background. I think the best is the first one. That is a mischievous-looking 80s Ilyana, with her arms crossed over her torso and her fingers witchily splayed out, looking directly at the reader being a little bit menacing. Uh, two is a determined-looking 90s Karma with her power flare activated, and three is a worried-looking 90s Wolfsbane in her transitional wolf form. But I like that they're consistent. I like that if you line up the covers next to each other, this is clearly the same series. Is 390s Wolfsbane? I thought that it was supposed to be OG Wolfsbane just because of her relative role in the story in that chapter. 
So I was thinking that might be the case, but she's wearing that 90s X-Factory uniform that 90s Wolfsbane wears. So I think it's intended mm. to be the 90s one. Also, she has those giant, like, fur head pointy things that 90s Wolfsbane was often drawn with. Ah, good point. Well, we open in the danger room, as we so often do. This time, the danger room holographically imitating the demon realm of Limbo that Magic grew up in. This is very common, of course, in X-Men stories. You open in the danger room, that gives you a chance to get the names, the personalities, the powers of all the characters, as they all call each other by name repeatedly and verbally state what their powers are as they use them. And here it also gives you some background into Ilyana and into the nature of Limbo, which is going to be important later. Now, this is the original team, and this is therefore sometime in the 1980s, but I think we can get more specific in that than that. I think, in, in fact, this takes place... It's got to be somewhere between New Mutants 21 and 31, because it's once the other eight are all on the team, but Karma's gone. Yeah, yeah, Karma, of course, disappeared very early in New Mutants, but the other characters didn't join for a while. So if we drill down, I was thinking it's probably between either number 25, the end of the Cloak and Dagger story, and 26, the start of the Legion story, or between 28, which is the end of the Legion story, and 29, the start of the gladiatorial kidnapping in the Shadow King's arena where he was possessing karma. Uh, the Marvel Chronology Project thinks it's the first option between 25 and 26. What's a little weird, though, is some of the characters had just met at that point. Like, Cypher and Warlock were very new to the team, and Warlock was very new to Earth. So the familiarity the characters interact with here is a little weird, but it's also really enjoyable to read, to see them acting a little more like their later selves, so I really can't complain, even if maybe it's a little inaccurate. Yeah, to me, that behavior and those dynamics imply that it's it's the later one of those intersections between 28 and 29. Yeah, although, I mean, really, even that's just a few issues later, so I don't know. But the point is, Karma is presumed dead, and the rest of the team has gathered. Speaking of characters acting a little strange, did you notice that Sunspot's uh, dialogue, um, a lot of the non-English stuff, was in kind of the wrong language? Yeah, yeah, it's in Spanish, isn't it? Yeah, it should be Portuguese. Like, he's from Brazil. They, they speak Portuguese there. Um, I don't know. I can see it as an easy mistake to make, but it's weird because Ben Robb is like a total continuity junkie. We've seen that in so much of his writing, so it seems odd for him to get a fundamental detail like that wrong. It really, really does. And that makes me wonder at, at what point in the pipeline those errors happened. Something else we should probably note about you know Ben Robb and the details is that this comic is full of something that I associate with 80s Marvel much, much more than 90s, which is footnotes. Oh, there are footnotes everywhere, as well there should be. This is a love letter to New Mutants continuity. Like, Rob is clearly a New Mutants fan, and fair enough. I mean, they've always been my favorite X-Team, and that so shows through. So, let's go back into Limbo. The characters are in Limbo. Well, okay, the danger room creating Limbo. I always wondered how it does that. Like, did Ilyana just describe it like one of those uh, criminal profile sketches that police create? Or did it pull it out of her brain? Do we ever find out how the danger room does that? How it, like, perfectly replicates certain environments? Well, we know that it's somewhat sentient. And we also know that it's set up by and was previously largely run by a telepath who could just pull things out of people's brains. Okay, okay, I'll buy that. Anyway, it's Limbo, which is a terrible, terrible place. And that terrible place includes a bunch of demons, including the big purple dude, Sim. And 
Ilyana kills him in this simulation, but it's clear this is very cathartic for her. She's talking about taking back her life as she runs Sim through. But as she does, she's interrupted by a cloaked figure with a font reminiscent of Ozymandias's. That is, of course, being um, Apocalypse's herald. And this, this cloaked fellow who is not Ozymandias says that she must come with him to the future to truly fight fate, um, after which Ilyana collapses, and Kitty and Doug, who are running the simulation from, from the booth, uh, shut, shut it down and, and head down to try to find out what's going on. Yeah, Kitty Pride is here as well. She was not a new mutant, but she hung out with them, especially Cypher, a fair bit back at this point in the 80s. She and Ilyana were roommates for a fairly long time as well, yeah? Mm, gal pals, yeah. Yes. Bernard Chang does a great 1980s version of Kitty. Like, his Kitty looks a lot like Paul Smith's Kitty from around that area, and I love that. I got I love all of his New Mutants, because they're all so immediately identifiable. And their later versions are so immediately identifiable, both as who they are and as, as you know, who they are relative to their counterparts. Oh, it's, it's freaking great. I love it. You see that so seldom. Like... Usually, there's one version of a character that some artist draws, and that just sort of becomes the definitive version of that character. And often that's the case even when characters age. Like, they just sort of get stuck at one age, which gets really weird when you have all of these next generations of X-Men just piling up and piling up and piling up the way you do these days. So it's nice to see an exception. Well, and in a landscape, artistically, where everyone is default drawn at, like, 21, having someone draw with enough nuance to distinguish between younger and older teenage versions of the same characters or characters in their late teens and early 20s is just exceptionally rare. Ah, freaking great. So, Ileana shrugs off the offers of help from her teammates with assorted murderous threats, as is her way, but Kitty, the aforementioned roommate, is not about to let Ileana sulk on her own. Yeah, she phases into their bedroom and, um... Oh man, is Ileana actually curled up with her Bamf doll there? She is, yeah, the same Bamf doll that she'll have in her bed when she dies as a little girl. Did it ever strike you as weird? I'm sure we've talked about this on the podcast, but did it ever strike you as weird that Nightcrawler just has a bunch of little plushies of himself that he gives to everybody? I don't know. I mean, I assume he picked it up um, after Wolverine gave him that, that signed picture of himself for his birthday. Oh, right. Okay, he just sort of figured this is what you do when you're in the X-Men. Like, a sign of affection is that you have some sort of representation of yourself that you give to all the people that you love. Right. Oh, I mean, and to be fair, the Banff dolls are adorable. And also, eventually, there are demon Banffs. We'll see that in later Excalibur, and then, like, again in some comic or another. I don't know. They all run together, listeners. We've done so many of these. Man, I want a Banff doll. I kind of do, too. Kitty phases in and tells her, We've got to talk, kiddo. Not in the mood. Too bad. Get in the mood. I'm not leaving until we're up to our eyeballs and the guts are going to spill all over the place. Very funny. I thought you were trying to help me, not gross me out. Gee, and here I thought a been-to-hell-and-back kind of gal like you wouldn't get grossed out so easily. Yeah, well, when you've seen some of the horrors I have, you tend not to take such things very lightly. Especially when it feels like someone stepped on my grave. Rob may not get every one of these characters, but overall, I think he gets the voices of most of these characters really well, and their dynamics, more importantly. Like, this is a very Kitty Ilyana dynamic. That's sort of, like, teasing, wry, sincere-slash-sarcastic dynamic they have. They're totally dating. Well, I mean, also, they're totally dating, of course. Yeah, I think the only character he doesn't really have down is Mirage, and we'll get to that in a bit, but so far, so good. 
Well, later on, with a crack of thunder in the middle of the night, Ilyana comes downstairs and joins the group and suggests a game of Truth or Dare. You know, they actually did Truth or Dare in the surprisingly okay New Mutants movie, so uh, I don't know if that was a deliberate callback. I doubt it, but there you go. You and I have fairly different feelings about that movie. We do. We do. I think I have fairly different feelings about that movie than most people. But this is fun. It's teens being teens. There are innocent questions like, what Cypher's favorite language is? Cree. And less innocent ones like, who Rain, of the people there, would most like to kiss? She will not say. We all know it's Sam, though. Yeah, it's totally cannonball. And Sunspot, who never misses any opportunity to get righteously indignant gets mad at Ilyana for asking Rain that, and dares Ilyana to face her fate and see herself in the future. At which point Ilyana, who likewise never misses a chance to twist the knife, triple dog dares them all to come along, and as everyone knows, you can't turn down a triple dog dare. Okay, Jay, what's a triple dog dare? Like, I know you can't turn it down, but but wh- why? I-, I never understood that. Okay, so you know that face that dogs do when you disappoint them? Oh, oh, it's horrible. And how it's, like, really intense? Mm-hmm. Imagine that in triplicate. Disappointed Cerberus? Yeah, that's why you can't turn it down. Oh, yeah, I would never. Well, anyway, Ilyana, as we know, can teleport not just through space, but also through time. And the New Mutants from the 80s end up in the 90s. They are in the same living room of the same X-Mansion, but now there's a portrait of Generation X on the wall, which is a really nice touch. That is slightly surprising to me, because hasn't the mansion been destroyed at least once in the meantime? Uh, it's been at least heavily, heavily damaged a couple times. And come to think of it, Generation X isn't at the Xavier Mansion. They're at the new Xavier School in Massachusetts. But I guess it makes sense that there'd be a picture of them here. Yeah, that that part doesn't read to me as odd. It's that the room is otherwise identical. Uh, maybe the contractors were very, very precise in terms of following those blueprints. Maybe Professor Xavier telepathically forces them to. Maybe. And as we discussed recently, uh, Cable helped Xavier build the mansion, and I bet he is, like, super goddamn precise in his record-keeping. Like, he's a Summers, after all. He's probably also an architect, you know, along with a lawyer and whatever the hell else. You know, Cable is, in some ways, the Batman of the Marvel Universe. He's good at literally everything. Should travel back in time and be the Renaissance Man of the Renaissance. That would be pretty great. I just want to see him in one of those doofy hats. I would actually love to see a Cable series that was in the same rough spirit as, um... Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, where Cable goes back into the past and has to deal with past bullshit. (laughs) That would be really fun. Yeah, normally it's all future bullshit for him. Well, anyway, the New Mutants from the 80s are now in the 90s, but, uh, you know, so are the New Mutants of the 90s. In fact, a bunch of them are at LaGuardia Airport, waiting for Wolfsbane and her long 90s hair to arrive from Scotland for the the reunion they're going to have. Now, you may recall she left for the States in Excalibur number 113 immediately after kissing Douglock for the first time. Okay, Douglock's gonna be in this, and we didn't talk about him in the previous Leon. How does one concisely describe Douglock, Jay? At this point in time, Douglock is believed to be part of the Phalanx who basically imprinted on Warlock and Warlock's remains, and thus presented himself and believed himself for a while to be some combination of du- of uh, Warlock and of the deceased Doug Ramsey. He right now pretty much looks like Warlock in Doug Ramsey's form. So he looks techno-organic, but has, has Doug's you know, face and general appearance. He'll later turn out to be basically Warlock, 
but at this point, he's not believed to be either of them. Exactly. Uh, turns out he actually hitched a ride. He uh, squished himself against the bottom of the plane using techno-organic nonsense and has uh, come along for the reunion so he can talk about that kiss to Wolfsbane. So here we have the original five new mutants, Cannonball, Mirage, Sunspot, Wolfsbane, and Karma, and also Duglock, who greatly resembles two of the later new mutants. And whom Rain, of course, knows well, but none of the other folks there have met. Well, at least some of them haven't, and uh, there are questions. Frickin' fair enough. We also don't have Ilyana and actual Duggan Warlock, all of them being dead, and something that interested me is we don't have Magma. Magma was a member of the team for a very, very long time, for most of their history. The last time we saw her, though, was in the X-Force New Warriors Child's Play crossover. That was where she learned that apparently the Roman colony she grew up in, Nova Roma, was actually fake and telepathically implanted in the minds of everybody who lived there, and really they were all just lost tourists, and so she went to find her actual British family who she had never met. I guess she's still doing that and couldn't make the reunion, but that seems like a missed opportunity. It's especially weird because we do have the 80s version of Magma on the team here. Like, we could have yet another parallel, but we don't. That may be a deliberate asymmetry just to account for the fact that Karma's not there. That could be, yeah. Um, Karma ends up being instrumental to the plot of this. She most recently was in the Beast miniseries, which really should have been called the Karma miniseries because it was more about her, where some bad stuff happened with Spiral, who found her oft-missing uh, young twin siblings and turned them into weird— Karma's siblings, not Spiral. Uh, yes, Karma siblings, and turned them into weird monstery people. So she's been through some shit. I mean, she'd already been through some shit, and now she's been through even more. Like, Karma's life has not been good. No, no, it really hasn't. Eventually, though, she'll go to Burning Man and have two girlfriends and be very happy. I think we're actually not too far from that in our X-Force coverage. So, back at the mansion, the 80s kids, and I, I think we should just distinguish these as the kids and the adults for now. Um, so, like, the kids realize there's someone coming, that they're not supposed to be there, obviously, because they're supposed to be in the 80s, and they all hide. Uh, Cypher tells Warlock to kill the lights, and then Warlock smashes them with a hand turned into a hammer as he says, The lights are now dead! Poor, poor lights. Jay, it's been so long since you got to be Warlock. I know, and I've missed it so much. But 90s Wolfsbane smells the 80s kids, so it's time for a very awkward meeting. You know, in part because some of the teens that are here are now dead in the present day. And Duglock spills the beans about Ileana. He describes her, I think, as Kitty's friend who died. Whoops. So this is the part where this started reminding me of the time-displaced original 5 X-Men plot from, what, 10 years ago? 15 years ago? What is time? You know, the one where the original 5 X-Men got brought forward to the present to try to convince Cyclops to not make bad decisions. Yeah, and I hadn't really thought of it in those terms, but I think that that story owes a lot to this one. I think so, yeah. Because, I mean, you know, there's the time travel aspect, but there's also the fact that the kids are seeing the adults they're going to grow up into, and the adults are being confronted with parts of the past that were long buried. It's a really good premise, and I'm honestly surprised it isn't used more. Ilyana, faced with the specter of no adult to grow up into, panics and teleports away, um, and finds herself again face-to-face -face with, with the hooded man who approached her in the past, and discovers who he is. Yep, it is mass-murdering ponytail aficionado and extra-dimensional vintner, Mikhail fucking Rasputin. This guy. How do we describe 
this guy. I mean, you pretty much covered the bases with mass-murdering, extra-dimensional, ponytailed Vintner. Like, that that really covers it. So, Mikhail is the older brother of Colossus and Magic. He is also a mutant. He has reality-warping powers. He was a cosmonaut who was believed killed in a mission, um, showed back up on Earth, drowned all of the Morlocks, teleported a few of them who survived to another dimension where time passed more quickly and where they turned into Gene Nation, who came back as terrorists. And um, that's kind of the Mikhail Rasputin story. He tends to have very good intentions that play out very, very, very badly, even by Rasputin family standards. Yeah, yeah. He's one of those characters where his intentions just immediately become irrelevant because his judgment is just awful and his trauma, like, means he can't really see what's actually going on around him, only kind of seeing everything through a lens of all the stuff he's been through. I'm going to go ahead and say he makes the worst choices in the Marvel Universe, and that is a Marvel Universe that includes both Matt Murdock and Alex Summers. Ooh, whoa, that is a... that is a strong statement, Jay, and I'm not certain that you're wrong. And that brings us to The New Mutants Truth or Death, number two, Family Matters. This has the same creative team as the previous, so I'm not going to relist it again. Um, And starts with the OG New Mutants, the teenagers, face-to-face with at least some of their future counterparts. Quick roll call. Uh, Of the original team, we've got Cannonball, Mirage, Magma, Wolfsbane, Warlock, Cypher, and Sunspot since Ilyana's fled. And of the future grown-ups, we've got Cannonball, Moonstar, who's Gonna be, which is what Mirage's code name is going to be, Wolfsbane, Douglock, Karma, and Sunspot. And of course, what do you do when a team is faced with an almost identical team? You fight. I mean, this is, this is Marvel Comics. You just fight whenever you're, you're confronted with anything you don't immediately recognize. No, 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 that's later. For now, they actually talk. Right, so of course they pair off with their their you know past and future versions of the same person, and and the kids are very very excited to learn where they end up. You know, Danny is an undercover shield agent. Rain is wearing perfume and is a brazen hussy. Sunspot can be in his charged form outside of direct sunlight. The continuity stuff here is really fun as young Sunspot tries to understand what the hell's been going on with older Sunspot's description. Ascani, what? Cable, who? And of course, yeah, Cannonball is an X Man, and Karma is. Alive, which is a surprise to everyone because she had been presumed dead at that point in the 80s. As Warlock is catching up with Douglock, he describes the Phalanx as his people. Now, that's not technically the case. Warlock is a member of the Technarchy, and at different points in continuity, the Technarchy have either been in charge of the Phalanx or the Phalanx have been in charge of the Technarchy. Honestly, though, it's really just much simpler to have them be the same alien race, like maybe different offshoots of the same race, but still. Like, the X-Men cartoon and the two-part Phalanx Covenant story just did that. They just had Warlock and Warlock's weird girlfriend be part of the Phalanx. Well, and here Warlock kind of throws in a kinda sorta it's complicated to to qualify away those those um, continuity tangles. My favorite encounter, though, is is the Cannonballs, because Kid Cannonball is so excited to find out that he becomes an X-Man that he blasts halfway through the roof, and it is just goddamn adorable. Yeah, he gets stuck, and uh, modern-day Sunspot has to fly up there to pull him down. It's so good. And after Ilyana's reaction to the news of her death, Douglock is not sure how to explain himself to Warlock and Doug, who, of course, want to know what the hell's going on there— um, he offers to link with them so he can show them who he is and where he comes from, um, but Adult Rain stops him, probably judiciously. One of the things that's really bittersweet here is just how protective 
adult Wolfsbane is of Teen Cypher. Yeah. Because, of course, yeah, Teen Cypher, he died when he saved Wolfsbane's life. Like, he dove in front of a bullet that was being shot at her. And that was after there was a bunch of romantic tension between them. And so, God, can you imagine that? Just, like, being confronted with somebody who you wonder if maybe they would have turned into the love of your life, but they died and now they're here again and they don't know that they're going to die. Like, Oh, that's brutal. And you're making out with someone who looks just like them crossed with their best friend. Oh yeah, that's true. She did just kiss Doug Locke. It's very complicated to be Rain Sinclair sometimes. It'll be more complicated once there's the Asgardian baby who the hell Lords fight over, but that's not for a while. Anyway, Kid Rain sees all of this and she wonders if, if that means that she's, you know, eventually going to hook up with Doug and that's why her adult self is ask, acting that way. And I just, oh, kiddo. I know, right? Man, would they hook up? I mean, I'm just saying Doug would jump at the chance. I mean, I don't think Teenage Rain was hooking up with anybody. I know. I just wanted to make a dark joke about him diving in front of a bullet. Oh, oh, yeah. That was that was very obtuse, Miles. I do what I can. So Ilyana and her older brother Mikhail, now decloaked, show back up and uh, get some very different reactions from the teens and the adults. That's right, because to the OG New Mutants, to the teens, he's just a cool dude who's been to space. The adults, on the other hand, know him as the supervillain who drowned all the Morlocks, created Gene Nation, and generally destroys everything that he touches, usually with massive, massive repercussions. Right? So Mikhail, he kind of thinks this is maybe a way to redeem himself, a way to his salvation, to help his family out, maybe finally do some good. Right, and he thinks that his reality-warping powers specifically can save Ilyana from the legacy virus, which is what is going to kill her eventually after she gives up her life and is de-aged back to a six-year-old at the end of the Inferno event. Okay, question about that part. Like... Trying to remove the legacy virus from someone who's going to die of it? Sure, that makes sense. But Mikhail knows the way this is going to go. He knows that teen Ilyana will be de-aged into child Ilyana. So would curing the legacy virus in teen Ilyana have any effect after she regresses to a past version of herself? I don't think it would. I say as if this has any actual relation to real probability or, or medicine or anything else remotely rooted in, in the real world. But I think what he's trying to do, and it's it's very vague and, and somewhat self-contradictory within the series, is take an older Ilyana who's got a better developed immune system and expose her to aspects of the legacy virus so she can develop some resistance to it before she's actually infected with it. Okay, so that would imply that when Ilyana is de-aged at the end of Inferno, there's a degree of transformation, not just an erasing of a number of years. Right. That, or at least that's what Mikhail believes and is going into this assuming, and that's what will be held up by what ends up happening in the third issue of the series. You know, as we talk about this, I realize they talk all about Ilyana dying of the legacy virus, but nobody's mentioning any of the Inferno stuff, which while less fatal, was certainly more traumatic. It was arguably equally fatal. The Ilyana who existed ceased to exist. True. But I guess they figured if they were going to try to start uh, describing Inferno, they'd need to add at least two more issues to this miniseries. Oh my god, can you imagine, like, future characters just sitting down and trying to talk past characters through Inferno? <laughs> that would be amazing. 
Like, I just... And and then she tried to sacrifice the baby to a bunch of demons that she summoned, but there was this group of kids who decided they were going to save the babies, but first they got really cool outfits by breaking into a, a store. And then at the same time, there was this war over who was taking over Limbo, but there was also a volcano in the middle of New York, and Daredevil fought a vacuum cleaner. And, like, the other side of the war was this lady with her breasts mostly hanging out who was a clone of a different lady who we thought died, but in reality, she was just in a mattress at the bottom of Jamaica Bay the whole time. And, oh, God, this is, like, all of X-Men continuity. Yeah, Inferno is really kind of the culmination of the first however many years of X-Men. Oh, and I love it so much for that fact. Like, okay, I feel bad that we're talking about how we like this miniseries, and then we just get distracted by the fact that we like Inferno even more. But I don't know that anything can compete with Inferno. It's just the best crossover. No, nothing can compete with Inferno. And I think that fact validates the decision not to include it or even mention it in this miniseries. Because, I mean, first of all, it, it is it is a black hole of continuity. It is just, it is it is endless. In, in its its complexity, and second, you don't want to invite comparisons to it. For the same reason that you don't want to invite comparisons to the Dark Phoenix saga, because it does what it does so exquisitely well. Exactly, yeah. Uh, Barbed Wire is a retelling of Casablanca. That was a choice. Oh, uh, it should have been a retelling of Overdrawn at the Memory Bank. Oh, we're getting real meta with our uh, referential insertions here, aren't we? It's sort of a degrees of separation thing. <laughs> yup. Anyway, back to this whole thing. So, Mikhail is just, you know, in the middle of these adoring teenagers and says, he's but a humble farm boy, but dude, Mikhail, you are wearing a blue bodysuit covered in techno-nonsense and a bright red hooded cloak. What did you farm? Like, fucking laser swords and cybernetic implants? Are the crops really good this year, Mikhail? It's a good year for hexagons. <laughs> Anyway, the grown-ups huddle up and vote on how to handle this whole thing. They know who Mikhail is, the teens don't. And to give Bernard Chang even more props here, there are two full pages of panels of the 90s New Mutants huddling, like, sort of with the camera from below, and then close-ups of different ones of them. And for two full pages, for many, many panels, it is engaging and dynamic consistently, and it's just characters talking to each other and not really moving around. Someone studied his Wally Wood. Right? Or maybe it should be Bernard Chang's 22 panels. Now, Rain and Roberto vote to let Mikhail try. Danny and Sam vote no, absolutely not. And that leaves Shan as the tiebreaker, and she's torn. Because it's complicated, because there's friendship, but there's also the fabric of space-time. Yeah, some of the characters are worried that if they alter the timeline too much, their version of the present might cease to exist. Well, that, plus the fact that Mikhail Rasputin is just absolutely not to be trusted. Yep. Although that said, we have mostly seen in the Marvel Universe that when you alter the past, it doesn't undo the future that you're in or the present that you're in. It just creates a separate branch of the timeline, you know, kind of like the Loki show discussed. That's inconsistent in Marvel, and here it definitely seems to imply that we have one single timeline with a past and a present that all of the New Mutants are in. Which again is somewhat akin to the deal with the original X-Men coming into the future years later. Uh, true. Yeah, that was also an example of a more straightforward timeline than we usually get in the Marvel multiverse. So before deciding what to do, the grown-ups decide that Mikhail clearly is hiding something, and their way to handle this is 
to collectively just burst out of their huddle and attack because I guess conversations are for the 80s. God damn it, new mutants. They're not new mutants now. They're they're X-Forces and X-Mans and Excalibrites and I don't know what you call them. God damn it, somewhat less new mutants. Anyway, there are lots of arguments amid all the punching because this is a comic book and you can get a lot of words crammed in in a fight scene. But damn, the way Douglock and Magic get into it. You know, in the short time I've known Kitty Pride, I've found her to be a decent judge of character. But seeing the indecent way you're treating your teammates, all for your own selfish desires, I can't believe she was ever stupid enough to call you friend. This is massively, massively unfair of him, given that she is literally just trying not to die. And she points that out fairly effectively and with soul sword in hand. Also, through this whole scene, for some fucking reason, Danny, adult Danny, like, Moonstar Danny talks like she's an adult trying to write a teen talking like a, like, total valley girl. Hacking him to techno bits would really bogart their buzz, know what I mean? No, no, Danielle, I do not, in fact, know what you mean. Well, the grown-ups easily win because, you know, grown-ups, until karma turns against them. Not only can she possess people, but now, as of this miniseries specifically, she's starting to develop stronger telepathic powers. And we saw that at the airport earlier um, in the first issue, when she was able to make people see Douglock as human, and it's going to be established later that her possession is just the most common manifestation of more general psychic powers. And that really begins to be developed here. Okay, speaking of karma, let's talk continuity. Because in this issue, she mentions that she was gone when, when Ilyana came back from Limbo. That is not true. Ilyana came back from Limbo way back in Uncanny X-Men number 160. That was well before the New Mutants were even formed. Although, to be fair, Ilyana didn't herself join the New Mutants until number 15, when Karma was long gone. But still, like, Ilyana was living at the school from pretty early on. There would definitely have been some overlap, even just for, like, you know, bathroom contention in the morning or something. Yeah, I would have expected the same, and that's that's a surprising error in what's generally a very continuity-careful series. You know, there's that, there's Roberta speaking Spanish instead of Portuguese, there's just a couple little ones, and I think part of why they stand out for me is because, overall, Ben Robb is excellent about continuity. Yeah, agreed. So, she turns on the other adults, and she possesses them and knocks them out, and so with all of them unconscious and locked up in a holding cell, Mikhail, uh, Karma, and the teens prepare for their plan, and Teen Rain realizes that she's got to stop them before it's too late. She is she is the only one of the teenagers with major misgivings about this, and she knows there's no one she can trust, but she figures out kind of on her own that she, she's got to stop this. What do you think about that? About Rain, young Rain specifically, being the one who's unsure about all this? Well, about her decision that she has to stop it, because her being unsure about it makes a lot of sense. She's someone who's grown up, um, you know, exposed to a lot of notions of fate and destiny and, and predestination. So messing with the timeline is something she's uncomfortable with. She also really doesn't like or trust Ilyana at this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at this point, she sees Ilyana as wicked, as like of the devil, but I think right here, uh, her sort of belief in that grand plan in some ways gives her a little distance from the immediacy of maybe being able to save the life of one of her teammates. Like, the other kids get so caught up in this, and understandably so. Like, if you just found out that your friend is going to die, of course you're going to do whatever it takes to try to save that friend. 
But yeah, I think it's that same distance, that same almost dogmatism that Rain has that maybe lets her be a little more objective, ironically. Yeah, I don't think that the New Mutants are wrong to go along. I think that they're definitely wrong not to examine the plan in more detail. And I will be proved right by this, by the third issue, um, which is Truth or Death number three, Letting Go. This issue has the same creative team, except it's just Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So, uh, you know, back to the back to the usual core. Uh, thank you for your service, Liz Agrafidis. Also, thank you for your awesome last name that I'm probably destroying the pronunciation of. Sorry about that part. So we open in the med lab as the characters are preparing to do this procedure that Mikhail has suggested. And maybe it's not the best idea, but it looks fucking awesome awesome. Cypher is in these cyber gloves and cyber goggles, and he's operating this machine that Ilyana's hooked up to by a ton of colorful wires, and Mikhail in his future armor, now unobstructed by that red cloak, is connected to the machine by even more colorful wires. It's just so appealing. It actually reminds me a little of the way that Alan Davis often drew machinery back in Excalibur. Oh, Oh, the Alan Davis connection is an interesting one because I've been trying, racking my brains, trying to think of who Bernard Chang's art reminds me of. And he's like, he's like a cross between Mike Oming and Alan Davis. That is a really unorthodox and accurate uh, combination of artists. I, you're right, because Oming has that really like almost jagged style, that very simple jagged style. And Davis's is so much softer. But yeah, like Bernard Chang, at least in this miniseries, is sort of a halfway point between the two. You're right. So, speaking of, of the great A techno nonsense and the stuff's going on, we see Mikhail's narration, and he's talking about this as an act of vengeance against the concept of fate that has so wronged him, which is a very Mikhail way of looking at things. He is all about some drama. He's also very full of himself, let's be real. Oh, oh, absolutely. Like, Mikhail sees himself as the protagonist in any given situation, which is, again, part of why the people around him all tend to die horribly. <laughs> yep. So here's the plan. He's going to use his powers to teleport the dormant legacy cells out of Ilyana. Seems straightforward. Okay. So they go for it. We have the teen 80s New Mutants all gathered around. We have 90s Karma with them. This does not make sense. The legacy virus should not exist yet at this point in continuity. Yeah, that's absolutely true because it was unleashed by Strife at the end of Executioner's Song. Exactly. There should be no dormant legacy cells in Ilyana at this stage because there is no legacy virus. Wait, I've got this one. Do you remember the X-Men miniseries Time Gliders put out by the restaurant Hardee's back in the 1990s? In the plot of that restaurant kids meal tie-in, the villainous Empyrean, fresh off of his single appearance in one of the early 90s annuals, tried to send the legacy virus all the way back throughout history so he could absorb the death energy of everyone who was infected throughout the entire timeline of Earth. So therefore, I put this to you, Jay Edidin, the Hardy's Time Gliders miniseries is canon and is critical to the plot of New Mutants Truth or Death. I still can't fucking believe Hardy's gave that comic to children. It was the darkest fucking plot for a kid's meal, I know, right? Yeah, uh, we'll link to where we covered that in the Visual Companion. It was it was quite a thing. That doesn't make sense, though, because then the legacy virus would have existed or manifested earlier. I mean, it doesn't make sense if you think too much about it, but, but that's comics for you. This doesn't make much sense if you think too much about it, which is our job. 
<laughs> I suppose that's true. I just wanted to bring up time gliders. I kind of love time gliders. But the thing is, I don't know that this is a continuity error. I think this is a Mikhail Rasputin error. And that actually does fit the plot, because A, Mikhail's not being honest with everyone about what his plan is, which we'll get to, and B, he doesn't really think things through. He's so much the main character of his own story, of every story in his eyes, that I think he kind of feels like the way the world works should just sort of mold itself around his individual circumstances and struggle. This is a perspective that we've seen in other reality warpers, too. We often have, yeah. Because that's very Jamie Braddock. Oh, God, seriously. Uh, in her own way, she's not a reality warper exactly, but there's also Gwenpool, who thinks that nothing around her is real because it's all just, like, a, fa a comic book fantasy. And Jamie Jaspers. Ah, Mad Jim Jaspers, yeah. Uh, Proteus a mm -hmm. little less so, but he had his own thing going on. Yeah, and Legion sometimes. Yeah, true, true. Uh, there was Nate Gray in Age of X-Men. Anyway... All of that to say, this is the plan, they try to do the plan, and something goes horribly wrong. Ilyana just starts screaming in agony, and all the computers explode and burst into flame. And this part, I love. We talked about how Rob doesn't seem to get Danny's voice very well. In one of her very few lines, because Magma never gets very many lines, he gets Magma. If this fire spreads to the rest of the med lab, Ilyana's danger will be doubly grave. Therefore, it shall not. And she uses her powers to put the flames out. That is Amara. She is a hard character to get right, but that kind of regal confidence, that almost arrogance, is totally her style. Like, she was kind of royalty back in Nova Roma, you know? That's always how she saw herself. I just realized something. Canonical comics magma... 100% talks like animated series Storm. Oh god, she totally does, you're right. Everything is all, like, declarative. Also found another continuity error in this scene, because Rob describes Rain as Catholic. Oh, yeah. yeah, everyone makes that mistake. In fact, I think we may have even made that mistake early, early on in our coverage. She's Scots right, Presbyterian. She's Presbyterian. Totally different thing. Not Catholic. I mean, oppressive religions are no good regardless of what they are, but, but still... This, this reminds me of the Family Guy bit from back when Family Guy was still funny, where he, where the, the main character visits a synagogue and there's a collection plate, and he's like, I gave a church on Sunday, and I'm pretty sure it all goes to the same god. <laughs> Love it. Everybody rushes to the ICU to treat Ilyana, and as Ilyana recovers, she asks her big brother, who she hasn't seen ever, I mean, he was in space before she was born— to tell her about his adventures, all the different adventures he had in his time, in space, and wherever else he was. And he makes sort of a thin excuse and leaves because, in thinking through them, he can't think of anything he's proud of or anything that he's really even comfortable with her knowing about him. Which is a little sad, but also definitely a hole he dug for himself. Yeah. Well, okay, let's give Mikhail a tiny bit of sympathy here. Yes, he's become a monster, he's done horrible things, but when his powers first manifested, when he was a cosmonaut, he was teleported to a harsh alternate dimension, and he was stuck there, and he went through a lot of really hard stuff. So, it didn't come out of pure, like, evil or selfishness. There is a core of trauma at the center of his doing terrible things to the world. I mean, I'm not saying he's not traumatized, and that's the thing about Mikhail, is that he goes into everything he goes into with very good intentions. 
Like, he's he's not malicious at all. He just makes terrible, terrible choices. Yeah, even when he killed so many of the Morlocks, he legitimately thought that was the right thing to do. Yeah. Well, Mikhail comes out and tells the New Mutants that, hey, the operation was a complete success. Everything was fine and straightforward. But Cypher, consummate IT guy, respect, knows that nothing that complex can be quite so clean and tidy and simple. So he goes to check out the computer hooked up to the big wacky machine, which I guess has not burst into flame. And from this, he learns two things. First, Mikhail didn't cure Eliana. He introduced the legacy virus to her system. He is the one responsible for her being infected with it in the first place. And second, that he, Doug, is also dead in this future. As this is all happening, another of the 80s New Mutants is suspicious as well, that being the aforementioned Wolfsbane. She sneaks off to find and try to free the imprisoned 90s New Mutants. Turns out they're doing pretty much okay, and I love this part. Everybody's unconscious except for Cannonball. He wakes up first, and he thinks through the situation by trying to figure out what Cyclops would do, and he ends up just holding up the hand of the unconscious Douglock and poking it through the Electro Wall to wake him up. The whole time telling himself, Careful now. Rain'd kill me if she found out I electrocuted her new boyfriend. Sure, Wolfsbane used to have a thang for me, but that's ancient history now. This E.T. is her bow now, or so it seems. Gee, Guthrie, jealous? Cordia just missed Tabitha that much. Unfortunately, Mikhail intercepts 80's reign during her rescue attempt. Fortunately, the rescue attempt was entirely unnecessary as the 90's New Mutants burst through the door like they trained with X-Factor. I'm not gonna lie, seeing so many of the 90s scattered New Mutants fighting together as one is just great. They've been on different teams for so long, and we've seen a couple of them together here and there, but this is like all the surviving New Mutants from the 1990s. Well, okay, except for Magma, who's off, I don't know, trying to untangle her weird past retcon, but, you know, the rest of them, and it's awesome. And it's a pretty even fight, and Mikhail's trying to tell them to stop fighting so he can help Ilyana... Until Ilyana shows up with her teammates, um, holds the cell sword to his throat and tells him that, nope, Doug told her what happened, they figured it out. Mikhail was the one who was infected with the legacy virus, and instead of giving her immunity, he infected her with it. Yeah, yeah, he was hoping that her older body could fight it off and thus give her younger self some immunity in the future. And this part is unclear. Jay, I remember you and I were trying to untangle this before we started recording, so... Was Mikhail curing himself of the legacy virus by giving it to Ileana? Or was this purely a foolish but altruistic kind of thing, trying to cure her? Like, what's going on there? I think it's the latter. Okay, and yeah, my interpretation was that he was teleporting the cells out of his system. Because at one point, Doug mentions that Mikhail's own body couldn't deal with it, so he was hoping Ilyana's could. And, like, Mikhail does say at one point that he's doing this partially for himself, but it's unclear. Like... I love this miniseries, but the plot is a little nonsensical. Like, the central part of the plot doesn't exactly make sense. Oh, yeah, yeah. The MacGuffins and the Wismabobs are really just there to propel the character interactions. Yeah, and, like, I'm fine with that, but still. Nonetheless, Mikhail, of course, has to be all emo about the whole thing as he's found out. For once in my misbegotten life, I wanted to do some good. To help instead of hurt. I failed. 
Dear sister, can you, will you, ever forgive me? Ilyana responds. I hope you burn in hell. Damn right, sister. And Mikhail teleports away, and there are just these beautiful panels of Ilyana's face as her anger turns into this quiet grief and tears start dripping from her eyes. It It's beautiful. It's subtle. And as they prepare to head back to their own time, Ilyana asks Karma, who now has the psychic abilities to do so, to wipe all of the teens' memories of this event, saying, This is the last day I ever want to remember. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have a life to get back to. Whatever's left of it. And after the 80s kids go back to their own time, the 90s New Mutants process all of this. They process the fact that Ilyana was betrayed by her brother, that she was indirectly killed by him. Mirage especially is having a hard time with this, wondering who you can trust if you can't trust family. But Sunspot's got the answer. Who's always there to perk you up when you're feeling down? Who stands beside you through thick and thin till the bitter end, even when the whole world's against you and the battle lost before it's even begun? And most importantly, who's going to comfort you when you're hurting deep down inside and the pain just won't go away? And if you had a party and invited everyone you knew, you would see. The biggest gift would be from me and the card attached would say, Your friends. I love it. Because, you know, if you're going to try to get to the core of who the New Mutants are... If you're going to have this reunion years later, like this double reunion in a way, you have to understand what makes the New Mutants the New Mutants, and it's exactly that. It's the fact that the relationships they have with each other, that friendship, it's it's found family. It's the center of all of their lives. Like, that's what makes the New Mutants so appealing as a comic. That's what makes Generation X work in contrast, because that's not the same relationship those characters have. And I love that amid the multiple potential timelines— Amid a, a pretty nonsensical villain plot, like, this series hones in on what makes the New Mutants work the best, that friendship. Yeah, that's one of the most powerful statements of this series, that with all of the bullshit, with all of the loss, ten years in the future, the New Mutants who are still there are still family. Yeah, very much so. And I like that it doesn't have a nice, clean, happy ending, I like that there's the frustration of that and they all forgot kind of plot line, which is always frustrating whenever it happens in fiction, sometimes tragic. And Liliana still is going to die. I mean, okay, yes, she'll get better later, but she does die. Like, that's part of growing up is accepting the tragedies that are a part of your past and accepting that even when you want to, you can't change them. They just happen. And as the New Mutants head back to their past, I unfortunately need to head back to my own. My my window in the present is, is narrowing. So I will bid you and the listeners farewell and leave you in the adept hands of Al Kennedy. Once again. Past Jay, good luck with, you know, becoming a parent. I am very excited for you, and I hope you have an excellent time away. Thanks, and uh, me too. From from here, all I can see do is look forward and hope it turns out. And with us for our winter special this year is X-Men writer Al Ewing. Al, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. It's uh, always always great to be on the show. Yes, no, we are we're very, very psyched to talk to you. Uh, you have written so much Marvel stuff, so much X stuff. Like, currently, I know you're doing X-Men Red. That came from S.W.O.R.D. 
before that you did a bunch of Avengers stuff, the recent ambitious and wonderful Defenders, Guardians of the Galaxy, Immortal Hulk, Loki, Agent of Asgard, you were Deadpool, Venom, so, so very much. And somehow we have to condense all of that into one interview. Yeah, I, I'm imagining it's going to be mostly mostly X-related. Um as much as I would love to uh, just talk about the greatness of Taya from Defenders, I, I guess we can focus on X stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I can I can chat about Defenders. It, it all it all comes up. This is this is the thing. It's all kind of linked together. Um, generally, and this is just how I this is just how I roll. This is just sort of what I end up doing. It's if you read book that i have done there'll be connections to other books that i've done and that's that's not that's not some like strategy to kind of keep me employed <laughs> or like uh or to make sure that any reader you know immediately has other stuff to kind of download or get from the library or you know otherwise make sure i get paid for but like it's just it's just kind of um i like being in a shared universe uh, so I do a lot of shared universe type stuff. I think that's a, a brave and noble tradition in in Marvel comics writing. Going back, I mean, remember Fabian Nice is basically everything from his Alpha Flight to Thunderbolts to basically everything he did seemed to tie back into one massive Uber story. I mean, that's that's the way to go. That's the way to kind of. Um, I feel like if if you're not doing that, you're almost leaving. You know, you're leaving money on the table. You don't want to be in discrete chunks. Mm. Right? <laughs> Well, and that's something that I've really loved about your writing in particular, Al, is just like that that love of continuity, both the stuff that you've written in your other books, but also just Marvel continuity in general. Like there are such glorious, perfect, deep cuts in there. Um, I remember talking to uh, my wife as I was I've been reading through your, your comics before we did this interview. There is a scene in X-Men Red where Storm is introducing herself and talking about basically like um, – making it clear that she is worthy of the role she's now in. And one of the titles she gives herself is She Who Swam with the Akanti, which is such a specific reference to a tiny little moment in the Brood Saga, which is, you know, it's one of my favorite X-Men stories, but, like, it's not one of the ones that everybody remembers, where, you know, she kind of died and turned into a space whale and then got better, sort of, to vastly oversimplify. It's a reference that most people would not catch, but when you think about it, it's actually exactly one of the things she would say when she was trying to, like, give her galactic bona fides. And I love stuff like that. I mean, that's... I feel like there's so much... Um, there's so much buried treasure in these in these shared universes. And, you know, in Marvel especially, because it's like... Marvel had this big advantage i was i was on another podcast yesterday and i was talking about this marvel have this amazing advantage which is they have not so far rebooted and they might be the only shared universe of you know that's that's like older than like uh than like black hammer or a more kind of recent shared universe that's like um well hellboy but they're certainly for the age that that universe is the fact that they haven't rebooted and that like you know if you read um if you read a story with cyclops in it today and if you read x-men one from you know 90 to 1960s um that's the same guy that's not like a rebooted guy you know it's it's exactly the same person and yeah it's also exactly the same person who sort of you know ran off to be part of like 
the most poorly thought out X team, you know, who ran away from his marriage to be like in the most poorly thought out mutant team there has ever been, you know, absolutely snowed by Cameron Hodge. You know, that that's also the same guy. And, you know, it's also, and, you know, it's the same guy who's done a lot of stuff. But, like, that means that all of these people, all of these characters have these incredibly dense histories that you can go back and, like, pull little bits out of that you think are cool or that you think could be made cool or that, like, that just suddenly occur to you as being really pertinent. And, I mean, even, even you know, the, the, the flip side of that, the reverse of that, is that there's also nobody can read everything. So... I'm always going to end up being blindsided when somebody says, oh, well, surely you read issue... Where, like, you know, it turns out the Akanti are all, I don't know, mass murderers. They're all, they're all cocaine barons. So, you know, <laughs> or, like, something like that. You know, some somebody will have written, like, an issue of, like, you know, Marvel Premiere or, um, or, you know, one panel of, like... People are always bringing up, like, these sort of one panels of, like a comic from the 90s that, you know, was like a tie-in to Nabisco or, you know, was like a mattress a mattress commercial that says that, like, oh, well, according to this, according to Sleepy's Mattresses, make your snooze longer, starring the Hulk, um, you know, Storm can actually turn lead into gold, and why doesn't she all the time? <laughs> it's like, so so it's, it's a double-edged sword. But um, it is... It is one of the things that makes Marvel, I think, I, I guess, you know, more exciting, but also more kind of, I feel like with DC right now, you're kind of, everything is very much, you jump into a story and it is a, a bubble of, you know, a bubble of itself. There's, there's less of that connection because you don't really know what's real and what's not. Sorry, I'm, I'm into a DC bashing place right now. It's like, uh... <laughs> I mean, we're a very Marvel-focused podcast. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to say no to that. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm thinking about like um, when Grant Morrison did a bunch of Batman stuff and jumped through these very impressive hoops to make it clear that all of Batman's history was canon. And with Marvel, it's like, yeah. no, no, of course it's all canon. Every little bit is canon. The Hardee's restaurant kids meal tie-in time gliders comic where Empyrean goes back in time to give cavemen the legacy virus, that's canon. At least I insist that's canon. I mean, I, this is the first I'm hearing of that, but like that—that that seems like pretty, pretty hardcore material for a Hardy's. <laughs> that was my thought. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure it was part of Strife's master plan. Like, I'm sure there was a cut page from Strife's strike file where he did a, a, a long and purple prose speech about um, how he, this was going to happen eventually, and it was all part of his revenge, mother and father. I feel like Strife should just be like, make his next big speech. I'll, I'll get on to Steve about this. I'll, I'll say to him, like, look, have Strife make his next giant speech while he's chowing down on a Hardee's, a delicious Hardee's. <laughs> Work it in. You can have that one for free. So we can finally <laughs> make that cannon. So do you see these sorts of mineable moments of continuity as being things that you – would like you discover them as you're doing your reading on something and, and like want to keep them in your back pocket for later or is it more that you can yeah. kind of say right i need to have something that backs up this car- i bet there's something in the long backstory of storm or or whoever 
It's it's a little of both. Um, the first one comes up a lot in that I'll I'll notice something and it'll it'll stick in my head. And my head my head these days is like a kind of thick soup or porridge in that like I don't know if it's I don't know if it's like living indoors for the pandemic or like what what it's been, but it's just my memory at this point is worse than like Stanley's. Uh, it's it's like really so you know very very little sticks but like i still occasionally some bit of continuity minutiae i'll kind of come across it and it'll be just like oh man i've got to do something with that but sometimes it is it is like you say and that it's like um for defenders when uh when i was placing these sort of marvel cosmic zones um kind of on the on on the the Tree of Life in, in Kabbalah. Um, the the white hot room I was always thinking would go on on Tifra, on on the on, like, right right in the middle, right in the hub. And like partly that was because I sort of had a rough idea of the shape the journey would take. Um, and I was kind of I was like looking it up and going like, yeah, I can justify that. I can, you know, because it can represent such and such and such. And, such. and then much later, after all of this has been set in stone to the extent that I cannot change it, I go and I read that Claremont issue where he puts he has like and you know, with him it's just like it's for a panel, it's like for a caption. He does it he does it in an old uncanny, I forget the number, and he does it again in classic X Men, but because it's classic X-Men, he sort of redraws that scene a little bit uh, to make it even more obvious. Um, and I think everybody's in a different place, except Jean Grey, who is right in the middle, name-checked, Tifereth. In fact, we use Clement's spelling of that. Um, and it's like, yeah, you know, this is the kind of... I call it synchronicity. This is the kind of thing that, like... Um, you'll have your story and you'll go back and look at the continuity and it's like all of the bricks will line into place. So it's like, Oh yeah, yeah, no, actually this might've well, this might as well have been where it was always going. Um, and you know, I don't know. It's kind of part of, part of the magic of comics. Uh, I, I suspect a lot of it is that thing where, you know, if you, if you're thinking of a number, you'll see that number everywhere. It's that kind of thing, mm-hmm. but also it certainly it certainly feels very sort of um, synchronistic. You know, the whole the whole magical side of it does feel very um, feels very exciting when all these dominoes kind of suddenly lock into place. As and, you're looking yeah. up an old Hardy's, you know, tie-in comic. <laughs> As case, yeah. If this podcast has one mission, it's to remind people about that. But yeah, so. So these days, like uh, X-Wise, you're doing X-Men Red, which is sort of a, a direct follow-up to S.W.O.R.D., which was one of the, not earliest, but one of the earlier kind of Krakoan era comics. So I know we're going to talk a lot about that, but if someone hasn't been reading current X-Men, um, if they're just, you know, reading through the 90s stuff this podcast is going through, like, what would be kind of the the brief explainer, like the elevator pitch for what you're doing in X-Men Red right now? Oof. Well, this is this is building on probably some other elevator pitches about how the X Men have a nation now and have like um, the latest of many kind of attempts to uh, 
create a home base and this one they're really serious and they've turned it into a country so like the you know mutants have their own kind of like their own state uh their own nation state and that you know you get automatic automatic citizenship of by being a mutant um and in the course of doing this they have uh They've done a lot of stuff uh, in terms of, you know, putting mutant powers together to do amazing and miraculous things, including curing death, you know, in passing. Um, they've also uh, been to the other dimension of other worlds where they came across uh, the Iraqi, who are from an island called Araka, which is an anagram of Kukoa because it's Krakoa's twin, and the two used to be the same island, Akara, but they were split in two by another dimensional demon invasion, uh, masterminded by a golden helmet that you don't need to worry about yet. Oh. Um, but, like, yeah, basically, um, as part of the resultant shenanigans, the island of Arako, home to like two million mutants from a completely alien culture that was like very much geared towards uh, fighting a demon war for 10,000 years. Um, they ended up on Earth. Uh, the more rowdy elements among them didn't get on so well with the Earth people. Um, the X Men terraformed Mars using the most powerful people. Um, it's now a lush, beautiful, habitable world. Um, the island of Araco has migrated there. The Araki have spread out across the surface. Um, there's also a diplomatic zone where kind of aliens gather. There are various, you know, Earth scientists have gone there to like study, study stuff. And X Men Red is basically about this planet and about this culture um and how uh the x-men that have that have sort of made their home there are kind of relating to it um yeah i, I feel like that's probably the most elevatory pitch it's sort of i don't know if there are any sort of because usually at this point i do a meet i do it's so-and-so meets so-and-so it's the x-men meets such and so i don't know if there's any kind of tv shows that i'm not aware of that to do this kind of thing because it's like um uh, i don't want to say avatar because avatar's terrible uh and it's not that it's not that at all i'm just trying to think god is there anything that's like um like a, a, a babylon 5 or a, a deep space 9 or something like that people people compare it to game of thrones a lot because there's a lot of politics and there's a lot of discussion of the monarchy and um, you know this this ancient civilization has an ancient government that is kind of similar to the X-Men's because on Krakoa because uh, Jonathan likes symmetry a lot but also um, very different because I like seats of government have roles <laughs> specific roles and jobs um but yeah and also you know i was having i was having loads of fun coming up with you know the society and the rules and all of the stuff and making 
making it all fit without making it simple. Um, because that was my big fear that it would end up being simplistic. Um, this this giant community culture um, would end up, you know, being the orcs, which we, you know, cannot happen. That is that is not that would be a failure condition. And yeah, I think that complexity really does come across. And one of the things I like about it is we get to see it through the eyes of all of these different X Men characters that we do know in the main cast. You know, seeing Storm or Vulcan or Thunderbird or Magneto all kind of understanding Iraqi culture in their own way and like changing themselves to fit into it or not in their own individual ways. Yeah, that was that was kind of the point of it. It was like um it was always meant to be different from Sword. Sword was like a workplace drama on a space station. Um and to be honest, if I've one regret with that series, it's that I didn't make it workplacey enough. In that, like, we got, you know, we we had to deal with um, setting a book on a space station that deals with is the X Men's point of contact with alien worlds and civilizations uh, is a little tricky on a during a time when there's a lot of drama among the alien race and civilizations that you've got to deal with. Uh, otherwise, what is the point of your space book? So um, we didn't have as... I kind of chose to lean a lot in that direction rather than have like... Because I opened with a giant org chart and I feel like there are a lot of readers who really like that chart and I didn't spend enough time, you know, on like the noodly bits of that chart. Like we never spent any time with the medical team. Um you know, we never kind of like. Uh, so you know, if I if I had it all if I had it all to do again, and like you know, a a billion strong readership, I'd like, you know, I'd get deep into all the little noodly bits of the chart. Uh, but X Men Red was kind of it was sort of intended to be an evolution of that. In that, like, I wanted to move away from Abigail Brown as the main character because, like, Sword was always sort of intended as like the the moral downfall of Abigail Brand, or rather the revealing of the revealing of what was already revealed, in that this is somebody who was introduced to the readership by sanctioning the torture of Colossus in the name of the greater good. She was always a horrible person, but like you know, it kind of got to a stage where I really wanted to have her like commit the sin that the readership would never forgive her for, which is like betraying the protagonists in the name of the greater good. Uh, you know, betray betraying the people, the X-Men in the name of the greater good. It's like, and I, I really thought it was interesting that like I kept kind of pushing slightly and it was only when she just out and out said like, look, Krakoa, honestly, the leadership of that is starting to be more trouble than they're worth. I think I'm just gonna, you know, like take over and, and do it my way. Um, just out and out saying this in like a villain speech to like uh, Henry Garrett. Uh, that was the moment, when, like ninety before that, something like you know, only about 30 percent or so of the readers were like, "Oh man, Brand's trouble." After everybody was because she she'd done the unthinkable. She'd like gone against the family. It's like, um, 
So like after that, I wanted to move her to a more antagonistic role. And also, we'd set up that like Storm was going to have a big lot of things to do in space. So I wanted it to be like a Storm book, or at least, you know, not a, not a solo, uh, but a book where Storm was the hub around which the cast revolved. Um, and we're kind of wrapping up, we're sort of wrapping up uh, sword business. In the past issue, issue eight, I was like, I made a kind of decision with issue eight and issue nine to have Storm absent and to have her absence felt and noted. One, because I wanted to kind of, this was very much a sword business. We were, we were playing out sword business. So I wanted to return to like Abigail Brand as the hub of things for those issues. And also I wanted to kind of like, I wanted people to like notice the absence and take that as a sign that something was wrong. Um, and it kind of ends with, you know, the, the kept you waiting, kept you waiting, huh? Uh, Metal Gear beat, um, which was, you know, if, if Twitter was a thing that I felt I could be on, um, in a content generating manner, I would have undoubtedly posted that gif, <laughs> posted the gif of Solid Snake going, oh, I kept you waiting, huh? Uh, when that issue came out. So, you know, that's, that's another, another reason. I dislike Elon Musk. He took that away from me. <laughs> there um, are so many reasons. Yeah, so many reasons. But like, um, yeah, so so X-Men Red was always, it was kind of a, a concentration. Uh, it was much more a sort of like, I, I guess that kind of Deep Space Nine thing of like, here we all are, what are we going to do about it? Um, kind of thing. And also, I really wanted to explore People, readers, read it. when X-Men Red started, readers hadn't seen much of the Iraqi. Um, and there were a lot of a lot of readers who were kind of, oh, we've seen them before, they're the Neo, you know. We've seen this before. This is boring. We're not, we're not into it. Um, and it's like, because in the room, in the Slack, we were like, Oh, there's there's so much there. There's so much potential. There's so much more to them, and like I kind of wanted to like get the readers, the most kind of recalcitrant readers, I guess, to kind of you know see in the concept what what we were seeing, and kind of like yeah, really, really kind of. So you know, I, I sort of. And we were, we were at the same time in the Slack. We were asking ourselves questions like, "Well, what happens when somebody from Iraq doesn't have useful warlike powers? Um, what does that mean?" And it's like, and you know, hang on, they were at war for like ten thousand years, and then they were in prison for two hundred years, according to this timeline. How has that changed things? How you know? How has that made things different? And you know, and what happens when? I don't know. There's there's a lot of I'm I'm almost segueing into spoiler territory now, but there's like uh, there's a lot of stuff. We're kind of building up to some stuff, I guess, that we've been building up to from the start on that in terms of like you know who are these people 
there was a vote in issue one of like, do we go back to, do we go back to the other dimension to continue fighting this war, or do we uh, stay here and you know build a new home in peace on the new planet? And it was like, you know, that was a debate. That was just sort of like, there were a lot of people who like, you know, wanted to kind of actually we sort of we left things unfinished you know yeah it's so so all of this stuff i'm I'm kind of i'm very much rambling now i'm sort of rambling and teasing <laughs> uh at the same time do you find it a challenge to if you, you've got these all these new Arakan characters and they've got this potential and there's this huge kind of variety in there that you need to be able to get over on the page to win these readers over do you find there's a push and pull between you know, giving these characters time to shine and not wanting to have those same fans go, well, where's Storm and Magneto? It's it's a balance. I mean, this is true in, like, because, uh, you know, substitute, like, new characters for minor characters, and this is, like, this is the balance of, like, every team. Um, I, I am very conscious that, like, I've got a couple of marquee stars and i've just killed one of them so uh spoilers so like um there is that real sense of like ooh, because I, I i did feel with with eight and nine like am i taking a risk here by having having storm gone so long you know is it am i going to be hauled over the coals for this one um you know are the are readers going to feel like no you've You've taken, you know, you've you've taken our money for two months. We're we're leaving now. It's like it's always a balance. Um, I think the only thing you can do is like if this was a a storm solo, and I feel like there's, you know, I'm I'm not the person who decides, you know, which comics kind of come out and which don't. But, like, I feel like, you know, this is... X-Men Red right now is sort of Storm's book in terms of uh, her viewpoint is extremely central to the whole thing. Her kind of... I do a lot of thinking about, like... I mean, the whole monarchy, the whole monarchy thing, the... um, the kind of kings, kings, queens, thrones, uh, does one person from outside a culture have the right to kind of come in and dictate to it? Uh, what is, what does it mean to, you know, join uh, a society? Um, all of these, all of these, you know, thorny questions that, you know, it takes more than 20 pages to answer. But like, um, you know, Storm in her character as like somebody who uh, for the last decade has been a queen who did not do very much as queen or you know did did a certain amount she was a very important character in black panther but she was a character in black panther um so there's that but also you know this same She's been a leader before. Sometimes it's come out very well, sometimes not. Her leadership of the Morlocks, some would call that a black mark. Um, 
given to meet Massacre. Uh, there's a whole... It's it's a very deep, very complex character. Um, so, yeah, so X-Men Red is definitely her book, but at the same time, if, if you know, word came down from on high, if, like, somebody said, yeah, the higher-ups and decided we really need to stop solo books, so, you know, one's coming out. Um, I'd be like, yeah, great. More the merrier. Uh, but like when I'm doing an X-Men Red, it, it kind of can't be that solo book because it's kind of got to be about the society. It's It's got to be about Araka as much as it's about Storm. It's about both of them. And it, and it seems like one of the advantages of having it not be a straight-up team book is that we can have multiple familiar characters who can have their own takes on like how does leadership work how do outsiders work in this in this new place and i don't know for me at least as a reader like it seems like sunspot is becoming more and more of a significant uh character in a role like that not exactly as like an opposite to storm but just as sort of another perspective and it's been really fun seeing him like get a gradually more central role in the book he's like he's like the furthest outsider agriculture but also the furthest inside and in that he's sort of he's right at the heart of this kind of um almost i hesitate to kind of call it a secret society but like you know it's it's like the night seats are kind of um a very kind of integral integral part of um they have like this very integral role to play and you know sunspot's just been accepted uh in a way that seems fairly i guess i guess kind of quick um compared to it's but it it's it's a very different the whole point of the night seats is that they they exist to be the opposite of um what is uh, the the done thing the kind of what is the traditional way of doing things they exist to be the opposite of that um so it's interesting because like you know magneto very much uh and storm very much join join the culture and kind of are like really going in with both feet uh sunspot has not deleted his backup in fact in the issue where magneto deletes him and stores backup sunspot is the one just getting resurrected like as part of a kind of oh it's tuesday <laughs> um so like that's that's interesting i don't know i don't know what it means it's like maybe... a, lot of, a lot of this is kind of letting these characters kind of play and then and then seeing where it's going i think storm and magneto had a greater kind of um mental investment into the the culture than sunspot did because they had previously been responsible for entire you know morlocks or acolytes or you know th- yeah. they were in charge of the well-being of societies i think maybe um roberto uh you with him you have this thing where what he has been in charge of has been outside forces acting on um like yeah roberto's leadership role has always been 
you know, the, it's he the groups he's led has have been sort of. I mean, I guess the US Avengers was sort of nominally part of the government, but kind of treated very much as a sort of like impossible missions force, you know, this sort of like, oh, we can't really control these guys. Um, but yeah, I think I think certainly there's... Storm maybe takes a greater responsibility um, in terms of... I, I do feel like the level of way... Roberto's always got this thing where, like, he's always he's always been that guy who you can kind of believe that he'll break bad at some point. Um, in the many alternate futures, and you know the whole rainfall business, but but that alternate future where he's like, oh yeah, actually, I'm a I'm a total dictator. Um, it it seemed like a good idea at the time. Who are you to tell me that you know it's a bad one? Uh, but like. Yeah, you know, they, he's always got that kind of potential in him to kind of... Whereas Storm, I think... Um, I think that she values her own freedom um, so highly means that she values everybody else's as well. So there's like... Uh, there's a huge responsibility she feels there. Magneto was kind of operating from like a place of like... both Both sort of deep grief, but also... I kind of, I, I very much worry Magneto to be like, um, he's like, I worry him to kind of quit the council, quick go, like move to Mars in like a kind of retirement mode. The Autumn Palace was going to be like his sort of, and this was before we knew we were going to kill him, but like, um, I kind of want him, wanted him to approach. Araco in in terms of like I I cannot be part of the Krakoan experiment anymore because I have failed it. You know I I have failed it. I no longer believe in it um, as something that is working. And if it's going to work, it's it'll be because I'm not there. Um. So you know he's sort of if he's got if he's feeling a, a responsibility to. Um, Araco, it's it's out of a desire not to screw up again, whether that's by action or by inaction. Um, and you know, I, I feel like obviously, uh, you know, he's extremely dead at the moment. But uh, if if there were possibly a way, he might return. Um, no, I, I, you know, it's like um, he he is very dead at the moment. But I I kind of feel like. Ah, uh, there's, there's like leading up to his death, and you know, right, right into his death speech. There's been a kind of general rethinking of some of his, you know, rethinking of many things, uh, up to and including things he was thinking when he and Charles formed Krakow. Uh, so you know, we'll see. You know, we'll see if uh, if anything comes of that. It's a very sort uh, of post- hitch- very hitchhiker's guide style. He's spending a year dead for tax reasons, kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. No, any you know, post um, there are any posthumous effects of his his thinking. Well, so we've been talking about kind of the central X characters um, in X Men Red, and before we move on from them. 
I do want to talk a bit more about Sunspot because you alluded to U.S. Avengers, another book you wrote with Sunspot as one of the central characters. You've written him in Avengers uh, before then. Like, this seems to be a character that you keep coming back to, which I love. I I love Roberto, and I always love seeing him with Cannonball or not. But is that something where Marvel just sort of handed you Sunspot, or is that a character you kind of gravitated toward on your own? Um, I did did sort of grab him for X-Men Red because he'd been in... He'd sort of, because um, he left U.S. Avengers, and I was sort of thinking that I might have an opportunity to do something there, but he sort of didn't didn't really do much, and then he kind of um, he kind of died, which solved some of the sort of ongoing plot things where he you know couldn't really use his powers without you know special headbands. But like, um, I did. I did want to kind of, because Jonathan had. I, I feel like there's almost a tennis match there because, like, I really I like Jonathan's take on him, and I like sort of playing the other side of that. Like, kind of playing. Um, you know, here is somebody who's. Cause I, I feel like the the kind of thing where like. He's sort of effortlessly Machiavellian. Is is like this sort of it's kind of a side of his character, but like it's very hidden usually. And I get to kind of bring it out. And I always enjoy that. So I enjoy these these things like um like when he was in New Mutants, it was very much you know, he was in full he was in full comedy mode. Um and you know the the business with with him and Sam. They make a great double act. But like, yeah, going into X Men Red, I was thought, oh, I get the opportunity to write Roberto again, and I can, yeah, I can do, I can start laying down some some kind of fun plot lines. Um, and I mean, there was, you know, there's kind of a toss up um, at one point. I think right from pretty much from the start. I was thinking of, I knew somebody was going to be like the third seed of night. There was going to be like um, the Fish King and somebody who could teleport because uh, they needed transport. And then there was going to be a third person. And for a long time, I was back and forth thinking, that's either Roberto or it's Abigail. Mm. And I was I was back and forth thinking a little bit, but by the time I was writing issue one, it was pretty obvious that it had to be Roberto because like that wasn't where Abigail's head was at. Um, she wasn't interested in becoming part of this culture. She was interested in like using it as a chess piece, like dominating it. Roberto, in his way, you know, in his very like. Yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, but I'm not going to give up Resurrection or my good suits or, like, any of this stuff. Yeah, he's very kind of, um, but, like, yeah, the, the, with, I don't know, there's, there's a kind of, I, I did, I did pitch it as, like, um, X-Men Red as a sort of four-person core which was still Magneto, Roberto, and Abigail. Um, with Abigail and the kind of 
antagonist role. And it was like, there was sort of a level of kind of, you know, I thought that the four of them made a kind of, made a kind of square and like that kind of, that was, that was early on that, that sort of, that went places, but, uh, yeah, Roberto was always in there, kind of right from the start, because I did want to, I did want to get back to that character and kind of just have another, have another crack at that character and sort of really try to, I don't know, I guess, I guess give him a bigger stage to kind of play his games on. You see him as being uh, a good character to work out issues of responsibility and placing things on people's shoulders as somebody who, you know, he obviously like he was basically raised to get ready to take over from his dad in heading up the Tacosta industry stuff, but which he completely sacked off at the end of the first one of New Mutants. But then, you know, he's he's been in charge of teams and so on, but it always has felt like he's got his eye somewhere else at the same time. Yeah, I I think it's like there was a moment where and this this is something I was thinking. Um, he sort of gives away all his money in, in an issue of US Avengers. And it's like, the next time we see him, he's, he's just, he's still rich. So he's got more. He's always got more. But it, so, you know, he gave all of, he gave away all of the money that people knew about. It's like the explanation for that. But like, there's this sort of sense where, I don't know, Robert, Roboto is interesting because he's definitely in like the billionaire class, but it's like, it's almost, he's almost like one of these, it's a very superhero thing. Uh, it's, it's very much a product of like a superhero universe, which is like the good billionaire, somebody who has managed to amass a billion dollars and is not broken in the very core of their soul. Um, which you would think you would have to be to get past, like, to get to that, you know, that ninth figure or whatever, that, that kind of, to get that third comma, you, like, how do you get to that place if you can ever be satisfied or have any sort of, so, you know, there's, and, and, you know, all of these people, all of the, all of the Marvel billionaires are in, in some way or other broken. Um, so, you know, Tony Stark is, you know, a, a deeply broken individual as, as has been explored many times. Uh, you know, Mr. Fantastic is kind of, and, you know, emotionally, empathically, he's sort of, you know, depending how far people lean into this, he'll, but he'll sort of lock himself away. He'll kind of. You know, he's 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 one I can see like making all this money like accidentally almost without without even watching. He's not watching the figures; they just roll in. Um, Roberto, it's like the money is just another tool. It's like another gadget. It's it's a thing he can pull out of his ass and like throw into a situation, and it's like. It's it's almost like it's not real to him, um, which is kind of it's kind of very broken. And there's been a few there's been a few places where he's acted on you know on the things that I've written where he's acted just really cruelly. 
Um, like with with Iski, you know, I, I call that quite a cruel thing that he did. Um, when you know he didn't really have to. Uh, but like, so yeah, it's he's obviously he's a really interesting character to me, and I like him a lot, and I like kind of playing with him a lot, and I like that he's not, you know, he's got a little bit of. Um, he's got a little bit of badness in him. He's, he's sort of, you know, that, that part of, I, I'm sure there's a part of every reader that would like to just kind of have that, have that air of irresponsibility and chaos and like, you know, selfishness and self-regard. Um, yeah. You know, he's sort of, he's sort of an intelligent Johnny Storm. Which is a terrible thing to say about Johnny Storm. I'm so sorry. So sorry to Johnny. That's a good way of putting it, though. John, Johnny Storm is, I think Johnny Storm is also intelligent, but has seen at some point decided to play up, you know, the goofy. I'm, I'm just a birthday boy. I'm just a, you know, I'm just a little dummy. Uh, I'm just a himbo kind of thing. Don't, and, and, you know, it, I, I feel like one of the perennial stories with Johnny Storm is like, no, Johnny, you're not actually a himbo. There's a brain in there. You know, please, please stop being a himbo and help the team. Um, whereas, you know, Roberto is like, yes, I am. I am also a himbo, but I am incredibly intelligent. And I've already outthought you seven times. But meanwhile, you know, check out my amazing face. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the things that goes through a lot of your writing on Bobby is that you know, he is somebody who is, is almost kind of masking his intelligence with the kind of buffoonery elements of it. So I, I think I told you before, one of my favorite moments in, I can't remember whether it's in yes, Avengers, or, but in, in any event, it's one where, um, you know, the, the team's headquarters has been completely um, overrun and you've got it all, the is it Omnitronicus or whatever the yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, I have turned all your weapons against you and you, the very room you are in is now your your doom and Bobby's just like so would you say it's some kind of danger room and of course at that point it's all over for Omnitronicus because Bobby can yeah. just run rings around that kind of thing in his sleep yeah, it was, it was, that was a fun scene to write because, you know, it's like, I, I did want to kind of, yeah, you know, I, I wanted to sort of stress that this was somebody who'd been trained as a child soldier by <laughs> another of the, another of the damaged billionaires of the Marvel Universe. Um, but like, yeah, it's, it's like with, you know, you say, you say Roberto sort of masking his intelligence to kind of, with goofiness and it's like, to get back to like a character like Johnny Storm or like one of the one of the other characters who do that, it's like it's not a kind of I want to fit in, so I'm gonna goof around and you know, I don't want people to know, I don't want people to know how smart I am because you know, I want to I wanna fit in, I wanna be loved, I wanna be liked. It's with with Roberto it's more I don't want you to know how smart I am so I can get one over on you and then you'll know how smart I am from a place where I'm in full control. <laughs> and then you'll know I'm really smart. It's like it's it's almost like a delayed gratification thing with him. It's like, you know. 
Um, which is kind of, you know, it's like if he, he's kind of, yeah, he's kind of a dangerous guy. He's kind of a scary guy. He'll sort of like, he's like, a, he's like, you know, that the Lex Luthor who's sort of goofing around in the latest Superman movies. It's like this kind of, but yeah, I really like, I really like that, the, the kind of chaos of him and the sort of, um, and, and a lot of that is the sort of, part of it is the sort of evolution of like the Devil May Care, you know, Claremont character. And part of it is kind of taking it, the evolution of like Hickman's, like Jonathan's kind of super rich, like, oh, I can just buy anything and I will. And I did. Um, like when, when Roberto just bought AIM, that was, that was a stroke of genius, I thought, and kind of set the tone for the character in that it's like, because it's not just I can do anything because I'm rich, which is this sort of, you know, that's a kind of character, but it's also like, I am at the time, we're making this huge deal about, oh, we're a company, we're not, we're not an evil organization, we're, you know, we're corporate, we're a company, you can't touch us because we're, and it's like, yeah, but I can buy you now, because you've you've made such a big deal about being a company that you're like, you've, you've got shares. I'm pretty sure that was uh, one of our cold opens on this show many, many years ago. That was the what trigger that Bobby just bought aim. It was, I, I think, yeah, I think I, I, I think I listened to that one, but it was like, it is that it is almost lateral thinking once you kind of, um, but like, yeah. So, so I really enjoy I do really enjoy that kind of that character sort of and I always I always enjoy a good like I did it thirty five minutes ago. Which which Roberto does a lot of. Uh under under my watch. He's always he's done everything thirty five minutes ago. So I feel like we could talk about Storm and Magneto and Sunspot and Brand forever, but we did have some really good listener questions. So I was hoping we could do a couple of those. Sure, absolutely. Michael Heide asks I'm German, and while various aspects of X-Men as a metaphor and comments on real-world society are universal, some hit me different than American audiences. How is it for a British X-Men writer? Same? Closer to Americans? Does the Krakoan status quo make it easier or worse? It's, that's, that's an interesting one. Certainly, I feel like if there's one thing I feel like hit, hits a little differently for me than it does for American audiences, it's the idea of kings and queens and monarchy in general in the we you know we have we had a queen we now have a king um i think that's sort of deformed our society in kind of ways that are very non-beneficial um and whereas i don't know it sometimes feels like uh, american audiences Romantic, maybe romanticize the idea of of kings and queens, and I I feel that like a lot of that is kind of um, they're obviously you know very for good reasons for that, but it's one thing where when I think of sitting on a throne, uh, or that is a negative image to me. Um, so there's does that um I, I so yeah i guess i guess i think of kings and queens as i know them um and you know as as they kind of have existed through british history as the sort of 
uh, the servants of and the um, the instigators of empire. Um, you know, these sort of uh, so it's 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 very much kind of associated with like honor and power, um, un, uh, uncriticized power. Um, it's it's very if you look at the current the ongoing uh, Meghan Markle thing in the UK where um, or rather uh, I forget her I forget her royal title but um, you know she is now obviously obviously part of our royal family and like there are elements of the British establishment, uh, the British media, the British kind of who are just like, you know, horrific about that, just absolutely monstrous um, in their, I guess, attempts to kind of, I don't know, either either get them to, to toe the line or, or sort of. Uh, who knows what? Who knows what the end game is? But it's like, um, so yeah. So there's a lot of there's a lot of that kind of thing when it comes to comes to sort of the idea of a crown and a throne and you know a king and a queen and that that sort of level of uh, monarchy and hierarchy. Um, so there's that. Beyond that, it's mostly stuff like. You know, I used to I used to have to look up things like how Americans get their milk and like you know what the you know little things like um, I mean since I've I've visited America a few times and and I've visited New York a few times and you know there's a lot of there's a lot of things like um, even even down to like the grid system um, it's very kind of because yeah, the the English towns it, are extremely chaotic and all you know, very very little. Uh, all of all of the streets are named, so there's no sort of um, cow towering to the idea that somebody might need to find their way <laughs> without a map. Um, whereas you know, in New York, if you just give me like, uh, oh yeah, it's on Seventh and so and so, I can I can walk there, you know, from wherever I am, and it's. I don't know if I don't know if how many other American cities have that particular numbered grid system, uh, but it is incredibly useful. Um, so I guess I guess that's it. I, I feel like I feel like the Thrones thing is the most pertinent to my current ex work. Um, I mean, not to say that I don't see where the desire to wield the power of the king might come from uh, for. You know, people people who are suffering under the power of the establishment. Um, but it's like I, I I don't get along with the idea of a throne much at all because you know, oh man, it was a long it was a long reign. It was a long time. <laughs> uh, we've also got a question from Nick Hall who says, first off. Thank you for finally acknowledging the existence of the Death Baby. And second, since X-Men Red, it seems we've lost track of Armor, Peeper, and Risky from the six originally introduced in Sword. What do you think they're up to? 
I mean, this this connects to what I was saying earlier about the the org chart. Um, in that, I do regret not spending more time in in you know in corners of the org chart, and 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 the six is one of those corners because we kind of we sort of saw them on a mission, and then we kind of just left them to run in the background like a cookie clicker thing. Um, you know, just collecting like these, what turned out to be these huge bins of Mysterium. <laughs> um, Mysterium clicker, yeah. Yeah, Mysterium clicker. But like, yeah, it's, I, you know, I'm a little surprised because I've almost been, almost been in the running for X-Men, I think at least once. Um, I feel like, you know, she's probably out of, out of those three uh she's probably the most high up the tree in terms of the you know ex-celebrity um so i'd have thought you know she's kind of she's probably making herself useful in terms of some i wonder if there's like an ex-team that we haven't seen you know the extras um but like I'd, i'd be amazed if like there wasn't i mean i i guess kind of the whole promise of krakoa is that you get to take a rest. Um, you get to not be on an X team for a while. So, you know, I almost feel bad saying that. Uh, Risky, I know when um, we we brought her in, it was very... Uh, she's got a lot of fans, and they were all very happy to see her back. And obviously that leads to disappointment when she's not back more. Uh, uh, I, I don't know. I can't. I can't really spoil where Sword might be going, but it's like, you know, all all of these people mentioned have jobs, and it's like, you know, will will those jobs continue? Won't they? Um, you know, I think I think if they do, we might see them again. Peeper in particular, with with Magneto dead, uh, wow, what what hope for Peeper? Um, who will? <laughs> Who will talk to people? Uh, it's yeah. I don't. You know. I'm, I'm sure he's landed on his feet. He seems like a very personable guy. Um. And yeah, I guess. I guess my my answer to that, my serious answer to that, would be that like the sword station has not. You know, it's been it's been beat up a lot of times. It's been you know it's been cloned once. It's been kind of dropped out of the sky once. It hasn't. It hasn't stopped like working yet, so everybody that had a job, I would say, still has a job. Um, whether you know the position, the employment position is still open. Whether they're still in that job, you know, I defer to other writers for now. Um, but yeah, you know, there's always. I think. I think if you don't see anything of a character. They're still in the last place you saw them, you know. Until until that is uh, denied by, you know, a new story, it's probably a safe bet that they're still, you know, they're still doing the job up at the sword, the sword station. If you if you're a fan of a character, you can probably take it as read that like they're having a nice time. If they're not on panel, yeah, they're doing yeah. okay and they're happy. Just up there playing some Mario Kart, exactly. you know, with forearm and random. Yeah. Literally, I was just like, random's got a switch now. He's so happy 
<laughs> I do feel bad because I've made I've, I've probably made more use of forearm than I have of like of wrist cane. And literally nobody wants to see more of forearm. It's just you know, Valerio just drew him really, really hot. And yes. I was like, yeah, can we see more of this guy? <laughs> oh, let's bring forearm back. <laughs> One of the one of the many legacies of Sword and X Men Red of your comic book career is hot forearm. <laughs> yeah, hot forearm. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's like um, I don't mean slab. You know, have we seen slab again? No, because Valerio drew him like slab. Uh, you know, so yeah, that's 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 not great. I should I should give forearm a rest and yeah, bring Gloria back. <laughs> Well, Al, thank you so, so much for, uh, well, first of all, for writing some amazing comics, like for making me feel so many feelings between U.S. Avengers number one and X-Men Red number six and so many things. Like, listeners, if you haven't read Al's work, like, pl please do. We would we would recommend that you do. It's, it's really good. Um, but thank you also for being on the show. It's been so good to finally get to talk to you. I feel like we've known each other forever, but to get to talk to you on an official episode. Yeah, no, it's been it's been good being here. It's um, I'm I'm sure if I've rambled, rambled and like uh, bounced between topics. It's a winter special. It, it's built for rambling. Yeah, I mean it's um, you know I hope, I hope everybody's having you know a very happy holidays and you know a, a wonderful winterval, <laughs> as as we say here in the woke nightmare, <laughs> uh, in the woke mind virus. It's. That really does seem like a like a Kirk Cohen era X entity right there, the woke mind virus. I mean, it's you know, I, d I didn't want to bring up that Santa is probably a mutant, but uh, I think he canonically is. Like literally, I think it's in the handbook. Yeah, there've been there've been a few Santas. Uh, I feel like a lot of people have like played Santa long enough to beat somebody up in the monthly universe. <laughs> but like, yeah, you know, it's. Um, yeah, if, if Santa Claus is canonically a mutant, then, you know, I'm sure I'm sure we'll be seeing them soon. Well, there's a story in there, isn't there? But if he's not a mutant, how does he access the island to deliver the presents? You know, I suppose what he comes, is, in, what comes in through the... the airspace, I suppose, but then he has to make sure he doesn't get shot down. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I think I think uh, Krakow would recognise Santa. Um, is, if, is the egg not, like, just a big present? <laughs> Once a year, they just put red bows around all the eggs yeah. as dead mutants are resurrected. Oh man, that'd be that'd be astonishing. They should do another. They should do another X Men holiday special <laughs> just for that. So, Al, if uh, Santas or non Santas are hoping to find you uh, online, where might they look? Um, I have a newsletter now, uh, which I try to update. Let me just. Let me just find it. Um, it's so new that I, I don't have the address committed to memory. But, um, yeah, I, I try and update it every week. It can go into your inbox. And it is currently, and I'm, I may get a particular do, a domain name, but it's currently at al-ewing-rights-comics.ghost.io. Uh, took took the recommendation from um, uh, Spencer Ackman, uh, who went. I heard on a podcast recently, "Extolling Ghosts." So I thought, 
Oh, well, getting on, getting on that. And we'll put a link to that in the visual companion, of course. Yeah, and that is that is my because I have now left Twitter. Um, in that I no longer post. No more, no more free content for the world's second richest man. Yeah, and I've looked it up. It's not taking new followers. Um, the only, the only posts now are links to the newsletter, and even then, I feel like I've had as much take up as I'll get from Twitter. So maybe not even more of that anymore. Um, I'm in a couple of other places, but I'm hardly ever there. So really, the newsletter is the place. Sweet. Uh, well, thank you again so much for talking to us about various topics, X and otherwise. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll we'll talk to you again on here soon. Yeah, I'd love to. And now. The ninth annual Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbo Awards for Excellence at Excellence. I do love an award show, I have to say. I've, I've got my full evening dress on. I look, we both look amazing, of course, as we, we would always do for the any award ceremony. Oh, of course. Uh, so we're going to launch in with the Modern Corpos, which is uh, the awards for comics, which came out in 2022. And then we'll pick up uh, in a little bit just with the, uh, the Corpos for uh, comics, which have been covered on the show this year. And we're kicking off with the award for Best Writer, which goes to... Vita Ayala for New Mutants. I had so many feelings. So many feelings. The award for Best Line Artist goes to... Phil Noto for Devil's Reign X-Men. The award for Best Colorist goes to... Israel Silva for X-Men 92 House of XCII. Or however you're supposed to pronounce a Roman numeral. (laughs) The award for Best Ongoing Series this year goes to... So this one is a tie. I couldn't decide, and Al, when we talked about it, you couldn't decide. I agree completely, yeah. So it goes to both Immortal X-Men by Kieran Gillen, Lucas Wernick, and Michelle Bandini, and X-Men Red by Al Ewing and Stefano Caselli. The award for Best Miniseries or One-Shot goes to... X-Terminators by Leah Williams and Carlos Gomez. I did not realize I needed to hear Jubilee and Salt Boom Boom in that many ways. The award for best single issue goes to X-Men Red once again, number six by Al Ewing and Stefano Caselli. Speaking of feelings. Oh man, just one of the greatest comics I've read all year. Absolutely superb. Uh, The award for the best non-X Marvel comic goes to Fantastic Four by Ryan North and Iban Coelho. And that's only at just two issues having come out this year. This book is four-color compassion and is two for two at making me cry happy tears. It's absolutely wonderful. I'm going to chuck in an honorable mention here as well for Moon Knight by Jed McKay, Alessandro Capuccio, and Rochelle Rosenberg. Absolutely my favorite uh, Marvel book, month in, month out. And it seems to come out once every two weeks or something like that as well. It's a Jed McKay's a machine. A fine, fine machine. Yes, good call. (laughs) The Cyclops Has a Good Day Award for making Scott Summer's life slightly less awful goes to... The fact that Cyclops gets to live in a literal treehouse, having already lived on the moon, and gets to dress up as a specifically non-angsty superhero called Captain Krakoa. The Comics Aren't Just for Kids Award for edgelordiest behavior in an X title goes to... Dr. Moira McTaggart for 
flaying her ex-boyfriend Banshee and wearing his skin as a disguise to get into Krakoa. It's just, she thinks she's so metal. The comics aren't just for kids award for horniest behavior in an X title. Goes to Legion of X for making it very clear that Nightcrawler fucks, which we already knew, but like a lot, apparently. The Nobody Understands You Like I Do award for reminding us how a character should be written. Goes to Anne Nascenti for making Mojo legitimately terrifying again in X-Men Legends number three and four. The Let the Past Die award for best retcon goes to... Marauders for going back in time to a story set in the 90s and in doing so making it clear that that flaming skeleton and crystal armor guy from the Age of Apocalypse was always named Nemesis, never Holocaust. The modern ABD award for why Havoc still hasn't finished his dissertation in 2022 goes to... Being drafted back onto the X-Men by Forge for the sole purpose of making Cyclops' life harder. The Irene Adler Award for Most Anticipated Upcoming Series goes to... Betsy Braddock, Captain Britain, by Tini Howard and Vasco Georgiev. And we have a very special Morton Corbo this year. The Irene Adler Award for Most Anticipated Upcoming Person, which goes to... Jay and his wife T's baby, who will have been born by the time this episode comes out. Jay, I am so excited for you all, and I cannot wait to meet the newest little mutant. Absolutely. And now onto the Classic Corbo Awards for material covered on the podcast this year. The Buried Treasure Award goes to... The Juggernaut One-Shot by Joe Kelly and Duncan Rouleau. I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't that. It certainly wasn't as good and weird as that. I'm going to have to go back and dig into that because um, the X-Men are really great for that, having series or or one-shots or whatever that uh, are much better than you would expect them to be and having them star villains see also Sabretooth in the last year or so of X-Books. For real? The Did I Miss Something award for least foreshadowed plot twist. Goes to Mondo for his abrupt and out of nowhere betrayal in Generation X number 25. The Took You Long Enough award for most foreshadowed plot twist goes to Monet Saint-Croix for the years in the making revelation of her true identity in Generation X. I think Two Kids in a Big Coat is an underused narrative device in superhero comics generally. Agreed. The Love to Hate Them Award for Most Narratively Effective Antagonist goes to... The Prime Sentinel Sleeper Program from Operation Zero Tolerance. That was genuinely troubling and scary, and I will never forgive those folks for what they did to Uncle Mustang. The I'll Give You an Award Just to Go Away Award for Concept that Overstayed Its Welcome goes to everything about the Crimson Dawn. I mean, come on, how did you make a dimension of demon ninjas somehow uncool? The Smack Award for Best Comic Book Kiss goes to... Wolfsbane and Douglock's Awkward but Adorable Smooch in Excalibur, number 113. The Luigi Mario Award for Most Overshadowed Teammate goes to... Wild Child, who may be more ethical than Sabretooth, but is also, sadly, much less interesting. The Odd Couple Award for Characters Most in Need of a Sitcom goes to... Frank Punisher and Carl the Executioner from the Punisher arc Total Extinction. The You're Not Helping Award for Worst Retcon goes to... Everything about Shatterstar and Benjamin Russell in X-Force's Shatterstar saga. It was confusing enough already, Jeff. Come on. The Is It Hot in Here Award for Sexiest Sexy People goes to... 
Bishop and Deathbird in Uncanny X-Men number 345 as drawn by Melvin Ruby. Those are not regulation space suits, my friends. The classic ABD award for why Havoc still hadn't finished his dissertation in 1997 goes to... Starting a new Brotherhood of Mutants and assuring us that he is definitely not brainwashed this time, you guys. For real, he promises. The Future Past Award for most anticipated upcoming series coverage goes to... John Francis Moore's Road Trip Era in X-Force, especially after we loved the early, more traditional part of Moore's X-Force run. This is going to be great. We it hope. really is. I love these issues. And the Best Listeners of Any Podcast Ever Award goes to... Once again, for the something year running, you, all of you, every single one of you, you guys are all great. And uh, if you're a listener to House of Astonish has come over here, then um, thank you very much. I also appreciate you. And speaking of gratitude, normally in this part of the episode, we would thank a few patrons as Apocalypse or the Angry Claremontian narrator or whoever. But this being our annual giant-sized holiday-ish special, we once again wanted to do things a little differently. So thank you first to our producer, Matt Hunter. Matt makes this podcast sound as smooth and clear as it does and comes up with all kinds of voice filters and sound effects from even the least well-articulated descriptions from Jay and me. But we're also so grateful for the incredible amount of time and effort that he puts into the show. We literally could not do this show without you, Matt. Thank you. Thank you also to our artist, David Wynn, who's been creating custom art for almost every episode of this show for most of the show's history, taking our vague and absurd prompts and turning them into images that range from hilarious to genuinely moving. We appreciate that so much. Thank you to Al Ewing for our awesome conversation in this episode and for writing so many incredible comics, X-related and otherwise. Seriously, Defenders Beyond, it's worth your time. And thank you, as always, to my wife, Anna, and Jay's wife, T., Jay and I spend a lot of time creating this show, and Anna and T are incredibly supportive in making it possible for us to do so. We are lucky to have you two in a lot of ways. And thank you, Jay, for trusting Al and me to keep things running while you're doing something slightly more important than yelling about X-Men on the internet. But for real, Jay, we are going to do our best to keep things going strong until you're back. And thank you, Al Kennedy, for agreeing to be half of an extremely involved podcast for a significant number of episodes without even knowing exactly how many. Seriously, it is already such a pleasure getting to be ridiculous about comics with you, and I am really psyched for the episodes that we have coming up. Well, thank you to you from me for welcoming me in, and thank you from me to Jay for entrusting me with the responsibility of keeping your seat warm for a little while. It's a huge honor to be here. And thank you to all of our listeners. And yes, that very much includes you. Yes, you, person listening to this right now. Whether you just started listening to the show or have been here from the beginning, whether you help make the show possible by donating or by telling your friends about it, whether you've never talked to us or if you post a ton of comments on our website, we are so genuinely grateful to every one of you. We love making this podcast. And so much of that is knowing that you're out there in the world listening. It is a hell of an honor to get to be in your lives in that little way. We, we love you all. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and Edinburgh, Scotland, and is produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. 
Our show is 100% listener supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, Sabretooth betrays the X team who's been imprisoning him. Again? Again. <laughs> <laughs>